Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Coming up on today's show, the annual general meeting for the UCP party went over the weekend, and all things considered, it was pretty good. Oral antiviral pills could be a game changer in the way we handle COVID-19 going forward, and they're getting closer to being reality and on the market. We'll talk about that. And the Canadian trucking industry is grappling with a big shortage in drivers, and it's only predicted to get worse, like much worse. We'll talk about that. Everything seems to have calmed down a little bit within the UCP party, at least externally, at least the public-facing side of the UCP party. The AGM, there was a lot of talk about how it could go. Will it come right off the rails? It didn't. Didn't. And the Premier says he feels invigorated and he's never felt more confident in his position as leader of the UCP party. Was a good weekend for him. Where do we go from here? We're going to chat now with Laurie Williams. Laurie, of course, is... An associate professor and student advisor in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal. Lori, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Oh, glad to be with you, Shane. You know, as far as this AGM went, and there was a lot of people speculating how it might go, it went about as good as it could possibly have gone for Jason Kenney, right? Yeah, I mean, he's feeling positive. He got lots of uh, of support from the people that were there. But, of course, the people that were there... Um, were meant to be, in the main, people that would be supportive of Jason Kenney and would be looking to address the problems within the party. I thought it was pretty interesting that there were actual MLAs um, there who were basically saying that more needed to be done. Um, There wasn't as much opposition. There were no walkouts. you know, I suppose it's as best, as good an outcome as as could be expected. But there, there's still the reality of the the 22 constituency right. associations that are pushing for an early review. So how does that work? Like, of course, there was a motion to get it up to 29, which would have sort of put a lid on that. That was voted down. So the 22 have reached the threshold to try and speed up that leadership vote. Do we have any idea on how that may play out? There doesn't seem to be any certainty at this point. No, there there isn't. I mean, it's it's there. It's being said that it's up to the board, but the bylaws clearly indicate that uh, a third of the constituency associations can trigger an early leadership review. So they have indicated that they want something before March. It may be that the that the uh, the board says, well, you know, this is a uh, the leadership review. Um, you know, we're, we're only talking about a month month difference, so. Perhaps they won't. I don't think right. really they can get away with just saying we're not going to pay any attention to this. But I actually think it's quite significant that the threshold for support for the higher uh, number of constituency associations was 57%. That almost looks to me like the percentage of support for the premier. And if that's the case, certainly he can say it's a win. Um, but it's far below the threshold that most premiers in Alberta have expected um uh, in leadership reviews, so and, and frankly, and, and everybody's reminding us of this, um, that Elstel Mack and Allison Redford got seventy-seven percent and were gone yeah. within a year of those votes. So it's it's certainly not a ringing endorsement, uh, but it's it's um, time to sort of 
at least a bit of space, breathing space, to right. try to get things back on track. And Laurie, really that's what this comes down to, I think, if you're Premier Kenny, right? Buying yourself some time, because he was singing the praises of Alberta over the weekend, and things. there are some really good things happening in the province, and uh, I think his thinking is time will heal all wounds here, and suddenly the economic recovery will be going gangbusters, and, and everybody will be happy again. And that's, I think, a, a very questionable notion, because the concern isn't primarily about the economy. It's not even primarily about um, about the management of COVID. There are a lot of concerns that have been raised. I was a little surprised to say that he was praising the draft K-6 curriculum when 57 out of 61 school boards in the province are refusing to pilot it. Uh, there is a lot of opposition to a lot of different things that are being done by this premier. And one of the key themes that we're hearing is that there's a, a top-down, almost dictatorial yeah. leadership style and he didn't address that at all. He he doesn't appear to be taking seriously what some of those concerns um, are focused on. And and without um, without actually acknowledging what the concerns being raised are and responding to those concerns, those who are critical are are just going to grow. And I, I was wondering about that. You know, in in reading his comments and listening to his statement after the AGM yesterday. I mean. He, I understand he wants to try and paint as rosy a picture as possible, but he's saying things like, you know, hey, we're never going to have 100% approval. There's always some internal discord in every party. We expect that. We encourage that. There always has been. There always will be. Um, but it seems like, you know, it, it's not 100%. It's more like 20% in terms of the polling numbers. And you've got, you know, MLAs and backbenchers. And it, the, the, he seems to be trying, and I understand he's trying to spin it and say, you know, things aren't that bad. You guys make it sound like it's really bad. Um but like you say, it sort of doesn't seem to connect with some of the issues that people are saying you need to deal with this when he just seems to downplay it. Right. And and that's, I think, the real problem is that because he's focused so much on, you know, the party and he's focused so much on um, on, the, on the fact that th- their values are the same, I, you know, that's all probably true. But the problem is that the, the party is divided, that people are actually criticizing his leadership thinking that they they need someone else to lead them into the next election because even if he carries a slight majority of the party it doesn't look like he can carry the majority of the province in other words that he can win the next election it's not just a matter of the polling right now it's the fundraising numbers less than half the the yeah. the uh, fundraising of of the NDP um it's the fact that there were two people willing to take his place at the convention Brian Jean and Danielle Smith were both basically saying Brian Brian Jean is campaigning for the Fort McMurray Lacklebish uh, by-election uh, on a platform of replacing Jason sure. Kenney as leader. And Danielle Smith openly said that she would run for the spot if it became open. Uh, it, that's not the kind of endorsement that you want to get at an AGM. And this is an AGM where they basically stacked it so that they had uh, a, a strong uh, contingent of supporters. So when we take a look, Brian Jean and Danielle Smith, um, that's the Wild Rose Party, once again, which Jason mm-hmm. Kenney, that, that's been his thorn in his side the entire time. Um, you know, how how much of a threat is this Wild Rose movement, which we know exists and has never gone away, um, and is represented by those two? Well, and it goes even deeper, I think, than Wild Rose. I think this goes all the way back to social credit. A lot of these writings are... Uh, from a different sort of, of branch of, of conservatism throughout uh, most of Alberta's history. And, and the problem, again, isn't just a wild rose problem, but it's certainly 
uh, stronger in in the Wild Rose constituencies. A lot of the MLAs that are openly opposing him are former Wild Rose members, and that's not necessarily to say that they're further to the fringe of the party and uh, on social conservative issues, or that they're more libertarian. Although those might be true in some cases, it just points to to the divisions of the party. So Jason Kenney came to Alberta with that mission of uniting the right. Since he's been premier, he has been governing as though he's worried about um, fractures yeah. on the right, and that th- those fractures, I think, are are hairline fractures, and they're growing in number. And eventually, I could see. Um, a movement to actually form uh, perhaps even an entirely new party or or for a number of the people that are uh, in in the UCP caucus right now splitting and going into another. And, and part of the problem is that many of the people in that part of the party are not just about elections. They're about principles. Um, it's about what they think is important, what needs to be represented. And one of those principles is grassroots input and and. The, it's not just a matter of not being grassroots at this point. It's a matter of um, being rather dictatorial. People in the party, in the caucus, trying over days and weeks and even months to get the the premier's ear and not succeeding in doing so. So there's this sort of central core of control that's happening, and members of the party itself are unable to penetrate and getting very frustrated with that. So whether it's constituency associations or members of the caucus, MLAs, um, they feel like they aren't really part of this party, that they aren't, they're simply a vote that Jason Kenney wants um, to continue to be premier, but it's not something that, that he's willing to do anything to, to respond to in a meaningful way. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few months. Laurie, thanks so much for your time today. appreciate it. Thank you, Shane. You bet. That's Laurie Williams, who's an associate prof and student advisor uh, at Mount Royal University. So experts are starting to take a look at the COVID endgame. What does that look like? We know, I mean, take a look at any disease, right? You know, measles, chickenpox, all these things that we have vaccines for. They, they, they pop up once in a while. When you take a look at vaccination rates for COVID right now, there's billions and billions and billions of people who've been vaccinated. But... There's billions more who haven't. We're at about 50%, almost 50% of the global population. And they figure it could be another year at least before we get to everybody. Now, in the meantime, there's some developments, and you've probably heard the news, about a couple of treatment options, pills. Um, And there's a lot of buzz around these saying, you know, these could really go a long way because it's not just vaccines, there's treatment and all kinds of other things. And these could be a real game changer. So let's find out what they are, why they'd be a game changer and and how they work. We're going to chat with Patrick Jackson now. Patrick is an assistant professor of infectious disease at the University of Virginia. Uh, Patrick, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Happy to do it. So we're hearing about these new antiviral treatments for COVID pills, essentially. Um, Pfizer, Merck, both talking about these. Um, how important would these be on top of, you know, the antibody treatments that we're using in vaccines? Just how big of a development would these antiviral pills be? I think they could be a pretty substantial improvement to our current treatment of COVID-19 if we compare that with rapid home-based testing. Um, I think this really kind of gets us much closer to the way that we deal with influenza um, right now, where vaccines are still our our, our best um, you know, prevention measure, um, but we also have meaningful uh, treatments that can help people stay out of the hospital if they do get sick. 
And from what I'm reading, I guess the goal here and the, the dream of how these pills would work, it would be, you know, like you say with uh, not necessarily the flu, but, um, you know, an ear infection or a strep throat or something like that, where you can go to your family doc, get a script and go home. You're not part of the healthcare system any more than a visit to the family doc, right? Yeah, exactly. So unlike the monoclonal antibody treatments have to be given in a supervised setting and then patients are being monitored for an hour after receiving it, these would be much easier to give uh, for people who are in more resource-limited settings and more rural settings and just kind of have less uh, having to go into the hospital or, or to an infusion clinic. Yeah, exactly. So how do, we, how do these drugs work? What do we know about the science behind them? So they, they're two different drugs. So, so the first drug manufactured by Pfizer is called Paxlovid. It's a protease inhibitor. Um, and so uh, all, both, of, both of these drugs um, stop the virus from being able to complete its replication cycle. So, so, it, so it can't kind of make new viruses. Um, so what Paxlovid does is, is the virus makes a lot of the proteins that it needs to complete its replication cycle as one big string called a polyprotein. And then that polyprotein needs to get chopped up with molecular scissors into several different proteins that are actually functional. And what Paxlovid does is it prevents those molecular scissors from doing that chopping up. So the virus can make this long polyprotein, but it can't chop it up to make it active. And so the virus can't replicate itself. Okay. Molnupiravir um, works in a different way. And what molnupiravir does is it prevents the virus from being able to copy its genetic code accurately. So the virus needs to make copies of the RNA that it carries all of its genes on many times uh, with completed life cycle. And in the presence of molnupiravir, the virus makes a bunch of mistakes every time it tries to copy its molecular code. And that actually makes it so the virus can't produce functional proteins and can't make new viruses. It's a phenomenon called error catastrophe. Um, so it's really kind of an interesting mechanism of, of treating a virus, and it may be quite difficult for the virus to develop resistance. Interesting. Now, how effective are these meds? Do we know yet? Has there any science to tell us just how effective a treatment it is? So the only data that we have about both of these drugs come from press releases from the companies themselves. Okay. So no data has yet been publicly released or peer-reviewed. So people should kind of take all of this with a significant grain of salt, but hopefully we will learn more. You know, in, in different studies, uh, molnupiravir uh, prevented people who are at high risk of COVID-19 um, having bad outcomes, who are treated within five days of symptom onset, reduced their risk of hospitalization or death by about 50%. Um, for Paxlovid, uh, and again, in a high-risk population group, it reduced the risk um, of people uh, progressing to hospitalization or death by somewhere in the range of 85 to 89 percent, depending on when they were treated. Those were not head-to-head studies, so you sure. can't really say that Paxlovid is better or worse than Molnupiravir. And we don't really have a lot of great safety data yet um, from, from these press releases. Um, but it is very encouraging and, and kind of suggests that these drugs may be on par with the monoclonal antibodies in terms of how effective they are. So in terms of getting that evidence and that data that we need, what's the timeline on these drugs? Well, uh, the U.S., uh, well, so, so the United Kingdom has already authorized use of molnupiravir um, and, um, you know, should be rolling out there. Uh, in the United States, um, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration will be reviewing data on molnupiravir on November 30th. And as part of that review process, we should get a lot more data that actually gets released. Uh, and Pfizer has also applied to the U.S. FDA for um, authorization for Paxlovid. And again, as that process moves forward, we should see more data. Um, so I'm hoping within the next few weeks that we'll learn more at least about molnupiravir and hopefully about Paxlovid as well. When we take a look at COVID and how this whole thing is going to look a year from now, two years from now, we've, we know we've got vaccines, we know we've got the uh, monoclonal antibodies, now we've got these potentially. It's going to take this whole suite of treatment options, right, in order to sort of get it to a stage where it's not having the impact on society it is now. 
Yeah, I think these treatment options, the vaccines, and testing is going to be a really key component here because, like with all antiviral drugs, they have to be given um, early uh, within the before the, the symptoms have, have progressed for very much um, for them to be effective. And so I think that the future state is encouraging everyone to get vaccinated, um, boosters as needed, um, early testing that people can access at home or, or very easily to doctor's offices, and then treatment so they can get um, you know just as quickly as possible if they get a positive diagnosis. Excellent. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. That is Patrick Jackson, who is an assistant professor of infectious diseases at the University of Virginia. So there you go. Uh, We'll track this. Uh, Health Canada also being asked to review um, these. Well, they're pills. That's what they are, which would change things. Because, you know, when we we talk about this whole COVID thing, it's all about the healthcare system, right? The healthcare system, the healthcare system. Well, if you have something that works as well as the monoclonal antibodies, which have to be taken in hospital through IV, uh, that a family doc can write you a script for, and then you go home and recover just like you do with a whole host of illnesses that we deal with every day in this country. Uh, it really changes things. So encouraging, encouraging news there. A lot of you weighing in on the text line already about the trucking industry in our country and a lot of you saying you know what it's just not what it used to be you don't get paid enough it costs too much to get licensed insurance is bad i mean there's a lot of things that people are pointing out that uh, i plan to have included in our upcoming discussion here um and a lot of things you are saying a lot of things that other people are saying and it's a situation that we need to take a look at and we need to try and sort our way through so to get some insight on where we are with trucking in canada and where we might go uh, we're going to chat with David Soberman, who is Professor of Marketing at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and the Canadian National Chair of Strategic Marketing. Uh, David, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning. So when we're talking about the trucking industry in, in Canada, I mean, I'm, I'm reading about tens of thousands of people expected to leave the workforce on top of those that already have. And just how bad is it? How much of a shortage are we looking at? Well, I think um, a combination of the pandemic, which has meant that um, there's a huge amount of things that we're missing and people are trying to rapidly replenish those things across retail stores um, in the country. That coupled with the fact that a number of people have probably left the industry during the pandemic because there was a lot less going on. And we also have this demographic issue, which is that the um, average age of truckers has gone up and they're getting close to retirement. That's physically demanding. So as you get older, it's only natural that people retire. And Mm -hmm. so all of these things have sort of come together in a vortex to create a problem for us where we just don't have enough truck drivers. Um, why are we? Why are they leaving? I mean, is it just a demographic thing? I mean, it, as as I've read, it's one of the oldest workforces in the country. I mean, is it just retirement by and large? Well, I think it is. It is very demanding, and so I think you know when you have an older workforce, um, it follows that you're going to have a retirement rate for that workforce on average that is higher than a workforce that is younger, because yeah. people that are younger are further away from retirement. So. That's the first thing. I mean, and the second thing, too, is that typically many of the people that we uh, sort of employ in trucking are uh, recent immigrants who go through a training course. And as we know, during the pandemic, um, it's been quite difficult to get into Canada, and the rate of immigration has also been slowed down. And so 
there's, as I said before, it's almost as if there's multiple factors that have come together to create a problem for us. And I also think that looking back on some of the stories that were written pre-pandemic, um, people were actually saying that there was a shortage of truckers even before the pandemic started. So, you know, uh, the, the idea here is that you want to try to reach an equilibrium and we're probably at least 10% under where we need to be in terms of the number of people employed as truck drivers. And when we talk about, you know, the trucking shortages, and we, like, like you mentioned, with the shipping problems and the, you know, the supply chain issues that we're dealing with, this is not an ideal time to be facing a trucking shortage. Uh, no, indeed. Um, often when you have sort of the situation is stable, you can kind of manage um, problems by having people work a little bit extra, cutting corners, maybe filling the trucks a little bit more than normal, etc. But when you have major shortages, you actually have to send additional trucks on the road. Yeah. And if you don't have people to drive them, they don't leave. Now, the argument I'm getting from a lot of people, just as we're chatting and uh, people are bringing up the reasons we're facing this shortage, is it's the industry's fault. You know, it costs a ton of money to get trained and licensed. Uh, the pay isn't really that good, and it's really hard work. You're away from your family a lot of the time. Does the industry bear some burden here in making this a more attractive profession? Well, that's hard to say. Um, usually, if an industry exists and there's people that are working in it and they're getting paid, there's usually an exchange occurring that makes both sides of the exchange happy. And that's really the situation we've been in up until at least the, the before the pandemic. In other words, truckers were paid an amount that um, made it attractive for them to work as truckers, and there was enough truckers to get the job the job done in Canada. We're now in a situation where there's a shortage, and that means that adjustments need to be made. So um, right now, I think it's really less an issue of blame. Um, It's more an issue of how do we work together in order to get the uh, problem sorted out? Because when we have shortages and when there's not enough truckers, it's not just the trucking industry that suffers. It's um, multiple people, including regular consumers and retailers and wholesalers and also uh, manufacturing plants. I mean, everybody's affected by this. So I think, indeed, the training is expensive and it takes a lot of time. So one of the things that you hope for, uh, that government can also work together with the trucking industry to come up with a, a formula that might either accelerate the training, increase the capacity of training, or even provide funding to assist the people that actually have to pay for the training. There's sort of multiple ways you can go at this. Yeah, and that seems to be another discussion. There's there's some barriers to getting into the industry, and primarily it's cost, so government has a role to play there. Are you optimistic that all hands are on deck here, recognizing what's coming up, um, you know, through the windshield, so to speak, and we're going to be able to do some serious work on this area? I think we are. I mean, I think that when people see shortages and people can't go into stores and there's things missing, when you have uh, plants that are expecting things to be delivered and they're not coming because there's not enough trucks, typically what happens, and you can sort of think of this to your own life, you say, well, I'm going to be willing to pay a bit more to get it because right now with what I paid before, I can't get it. And so, you know, you're probably going to even have an adjustment, which is there's probably going to be an increase in trucking rates, which will then translate into an increase in salary for the workers. And on top of that, I think if the government can work with the trucking industry 
to um, increase the capacity of training so that the truck drivers that we actually employ are well-trained. I, I think, I mean, the real question, we are going to, the problem will be taken care of. I guess it's just a question, is it going to be two months or a year? And usually problems like this, you know, are solved over a long term. So many, many, many months, but by working together, we will be in a better place. Okay. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. No problem. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. That is David Soberman, a professor of marketing at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and the Canadian National Chair of Strategic Marketing. And just taking a look at the text line, and there's a lot of you weighing in on this discussion and um, saying, you know what, yeah, I w- I'd like to be a trucker. I thought about being a trucker. I looked into it, but it cost me $11,000 just to get a license. I don't have that kind of money. So maybe the government has a role to play there to make that a little bit easier. Stephen says, how about you pay truckers more? You know, I think that's part of the discussion here because a lot of the texts I'm getting, I used to drive truck. Um, it's just not worth it anymore. The pay isn't there. It's, you know, you're away from home. It's 14 hours a day behind the wheel. And, you know, you, you break that down to an hourly wage and there's easier ways to make a living. Um, so that's certainly part of the discussion too. And then that falls on the rest of us who aren't truckers. You know, we're talking about inflation and uh, the cost of living going up. If you're going to pay the truck driver more... The shipping company is going to charge their customers more. Ultimately, you're going to have to pay more. That's the way that it works, right? And uh, maybe that's something that we're, you know, maybe we've been getting by with cheap goods shipped by truck for a long time. And, you know, they've been operating not at a loss, but certainly not, you know, being able to pay truckers what truckers feel they need in order to do the job. So, I mean, it's a mess. It's a complex situation. A lot of you mentioning the cost of fuel, the cost of insurance, uh, on and on the list goes. There's definitely some issues, some friction points in the trucking industry that need to be addressed. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.